Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Consider for a moment all of the fronts that have opened up over 40 days of fighting between Israel and Hamas. First, Israel brought the fight to Gaza. But then Hamas and its defenders widened the field of battle. We're hearing that six people were hit when an anti-tank missile was fired across the border from uh, Lebanon into the northern part. There are missiles coming into Israel from Hezbollah in Lebanon. But this will ramp pressure on Israel to do more. American military bases are being targeted in Iraq. There are reports of attacks from as far away as Yemen. And just this past weekend, the U.S. launched retaliatory strikes against Iran-backed fighters in Syria. And Megan's with me. Megan, the Pentagon suggesting this may not be the last retaliatory strike. Kate, that's right. The, uh, the danger here is that the longer this goes on, the more players get involved from the Middle East and the larger the stakes. That it's not just like- One analyst I read about put it like this. They said, we're already in a wider war. The issue is how large in scope it's going to become. Do you think that's hyperbolic? I think that's exactly right. Greg Gauze teaches international affairs at Texas A&M. But it also plays into the Iranian propaganda goals here. What do you mean? I think the Iranians want to be seen in the region more generally as confronting Israel and confronting the United States. Because that gives them kind of support for their notion that we are the only regional power that stands up for the Palestinians. And everyone who cares about the Palestinians should be in our camp. And so when we say we're already in a regional war, it kind of plays in, I think, to what the Iranians want everyone to think. Greg says, if you're watching the news and seeing this conflict expand into separate battles inside different countries, that is not really the way to think about it. Because no matter where new fronts open up, there's always one instigator at work, Iran. I think it's fair to say that without Iranian support, you wouldn't see Hezbollah, uh, you wouldn't see the, the Syrian regime have the wherewithal to uh, conduct even the kind of low-level operations that we're seeing now. I don't want to say that Hezbollah has no freedom of action. But I think they act within a general umbrella of the Iranian strategy in the region. The question now, Greg says, is how far will Iran go? Is it in any country's interest to widen the war between Israel and Hamas? I don't think it's in any country's interest to widen the war beyond what it is now. I think it's in Iran's interest to make it seem like they are acting bravely in support of the Palestinians in Gaza. But I also think that they're very cautious about direct conflict with the United States. Today on the show, we'll explain what's keeping a larger war in the Middle East at bay and ask, 
how long will the status quo hold? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. To fully explain what's going on in the Middle East right now, Greg Gauz says it's important to understand something called the axis of resistance. This is what Iran calls its wide network of proxy fighters. That includes Houthi militias in Yemen, Bashar al-Assad's regime in Syria, and Hezbollah's military operations in Lebanon. To see how these groups work, you can just look at what's happening along Israel's northern border. That's where Hezbollah, which is both a political party and a militant group, is firing anti-tank missiles at Israeli civilians. Hezbollah is the most important and powerful actor within Lebanon, and it basically has a veto on anything the Lebanese state can do. And so while the Lebanese state certainly exists, it pays salary to, to, to the government workers and and those kinds of things. It, it's a very minimalist state these days, and it doesn't have much autonomy. So what do the strikes that Hezbollah has launched look like in Israel? How do they differ from the normal status quo relationship at the border? Well, the status quo relationship with the border is no firing across it. Uh, I mean, the Israelis have had to evacuate, you know, towns close to the border because of the fear of, of missile attacks. But we should also uh, contrast this to the, the last time there was a major war between Hezbollah and Israel, which was 2006, at which time Hezbollah launched thousands of missiles into Israel. And we're not seeing that either. So Hezbollah is restraining itself. Yes, and I believe as part of a general Iranian strategy to, you know, do a little to be able to claim that you are supporting the Palestinians, but not enough to lead to a major escalation that might lead to, you know, serious losses. My understanding is that Iran faces a kind of dilemma right now, wanting to show its strength while at the same time being wary of facing the full might of both the United States and Israel. How are you seeing that play out in Iran, around Iran? Like, how are you seeing this tension right now? I think that's exactly right. It's not just the the fear of a direct confrontation with the United States, but it's also, I think, a delicate uh, domestic balance in Iran. The Iranian regime faced, you know, sustained domestic protests for a number of months. They've kind of died down, but one of the most sustained public expressions of discontent with the regime since the revolution in 79. And we know that in some demonstrations, there are chants against this kind of uh, aggressive foreign policy 
you know, why are we spending our money on Palestine? Why are we spending it on, on Iraq? Why are we spending it on Syria? Why aren't we spending it at home? That's not really a chant, but that's kind of the intent behind it. So I think that the Iranian regime doesn't have an interest in kind of bringing home to its own public a big cost for this policy of, of kind of being very forward in terms of influence in the Arab world and being very forward in terms of portraying themselves as the champion of the Palestinian cause. It's interesting because over the last year, of course, I've noted a lot of domestic turbulence in Iran because we saw so many women taking to the streets. And war is often a way to distract from domestic turbulence. But it seems like you're saying that actually the domestic turbulence is severe enough in Iran, important enough in Iran, that it might control some kind of militarized response here? I think it's a restraint. Uh, but there's also the restraint that the, that the Iranians know that in any direct confrontation with the United States, military confrontation, uh, they're going to be a loser. Where the Iranians have their advantage is in asymmetric conflicts, right? They can activate supporters, militias, allies throughout the Arab world to damage American allies and even damage American interests directly. We have a lot of military bases on the Arab side of the Persian Gulf. And I think that the Iranians have assets in all of those places. Can Iran wage shadow war through its proxies while maintaining plausible deniability? I would call it implausible deniability, but yes. Uh, and I think this has been the Iranian strategy for a couple of decades now. Is there any risk for Iran not getting involved in the conflict directly? Like, does it make them look like they're weak in some way? Well, it certainly hurts their claim to be the champion of, of the Palestinian cause and of Hamas and of the anti-Israeli axis uh, uh, for them not to do anything, which is why I think they've been very loud on this and why we're seeing these very, very cautious, small-scale attacks from Iran's allies you know, in Lebanon, in Iraq and Syria, on Israel from Lebanon, and on uh, uh, the American presence in Syria. I'm a little curious what you think it would take for Hezbollah and Iran to jump in here. Because there's this quote I saw from a Lebanese official who said they spoke with Hezbollah and the militants said their red line for intervention was the destruction of Hamas. But Israel's stated goal is the destruction of Hamas, which leads me to believe that groups like Hezbollah would be gearing up for something much more major. I think that the, the phrase destruction of Hamas was shorthand for we don't know exactly what we want to do on the Israeli side. It was a totalizing goal, but it also allows for, and this is true both on the Israeli side and I think on the uh, Hezbollah side, the pro-Iranian side, it allows for some wiggle room as well because Hamas is, is the military wing of, of a political movement the Muslim Brotherhood, in the Palestinian territories. I don't think that you can 
destroy that political movement unless you kill enormous numbers of people or force population transfers, and we haven't seen that yet. Thousands are dying in Gaza, and that's not to minimize the, the horror of that. But if you wanted to actually uproot the political movement upon which Hamas is based, you know, you'd have to kill orders of magnitude greater than that. And I, I don't see the Israelis doing that. Uh, I don't see the U.S. standing for that. And, and thus Hezbollah can say, well, there's still, there's still a Hamas, and our ability to, to distract the Israelis on the northern border helped to preserve Hamas for the next round. Talking to you, I get the sense that a wider conflict in the Middle East is not in anyone's interest, even though feelings are running hot. Is that fair? Yes, that's the way I think. And I think if, if, if everybody... Uh, thought like me, there would be peace in the Middle East. Uh, <laughs> there's definitely the possibility that that actors on the ground will do things that lead to escalation that maybe weren't encouraged or planned in any of the capitals, right? We're in a very tense situation, that's for sure. But my read on all the major players, that includes the United States, Iran, Israel, I think all the major state actors in this game right now would like to avoid escalation to a broader regional war. When we come back, how the U.S. is trying to hold off a wider war. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It was interesting to me that in the early days you could see the way U.S. officials, also as some Israeli officials, downplayed Iran's involvement with the October 7th attack, like basically saying, yes, of course, Iran supports Hamas, but there wasn't direct evidence that Iran was involved in the planning of this particular attack. What did you make of that? Was that, a, was that an effort to kind of quell tensions in the region? Absolutely. I think it was an effort to prevent an escalation across the region. I think that it was uh, an effort to say, we've got enough problems just dealing with this war in Gaza and that uh, we, don't want, we don't want to fight on other fronts. Did that approach work? Like, <laughs> did, did saying those things seem to calm a possible Iranian response? I think it sent a signal to the Iranians that the Iranians received, which is, we can push a little bit, but the other signal, of course, was the movement of the carrier task forces. 
The carrier task force Greg is referring to is a fleet of ships, an aircraft carrier accompanied by cruisers and destroyers that the Biden administration deployed to the Mediterranean Sea last month. This was a warning. If Iran, Hezbollah, or anyone else does jump into this war, the U.S. is prepared to respond. It's jets that can fly off the carriers. It's also missile cruisers that can uh, fire missiles on land targets. It's a fair amount of firepower, particularly when confronting a a group like Hezbollah that doesn't have an air force and and, uh, can't protect itself from the air, so to speak. Seems like a speak softly, carry a big stick kind of approach. I think that the big stick was the carrier task force and the speak softly was downplaying the Iranian role in any kind of planning for October 7. I do feel like it's worth talking about how sentiment can flip. Like back in October on the 17th, when there was that explosion at the hospital in Gaza, it was horrifying. And it very much seemed to change how countries around the Middle East thought about the conflict, thought about the United States. We saw demonstrations break out. We saw Jordan canceling a summit with Joe Biden, which is an incredibly big deal. And if something similar happened again, do you think that could be part of tipping the region into something wider? I think it's absolutely right to to consider the public opinion mobilization that could occur in, 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 in all of these countries, all these Arab countries, where there, there remains you know, strong sympathy for the Palestinian cause. If you had another huge explosion, another huge set of deaths, I think that that could push Arab governments to take you know, harsher positions. But would they go up to the line of escalating a conflict? or even the Iranians. So there's plenty of steps in between that, right? The Jordanians, as you pointed out, canceled the summit meeting with President Biden. That's a serious signal, but it's not like shooting across the border. And I I think that there are steps in between that that these governments, none of which are democracies, right? None of these governments are democracies. So while they take into account their public opinion, they are not driven by their public opinion. Right? None of these rulers really has to worry about being voted out of office in two years. But I think that they're still governed by an overall desire to avoid a larger regional shooting war. Yeah. I can't help but thinking, though, that right now we're at this point where we are seeing different but no less heartbreaking images of hospitals that are utterly destroyed in Gaza And we've also just seen dozens of State Department officials reportedly sign dissent cables to Secretary of State Anthony Blinken asking for a ceasefire in Gaza. Would a ceasefire change the calculus here on some kind of wider conflict? It certainly would. I think it would would lessen tensions. It would be a, a step down from the Israeli position that they won't accept a ceasefire and that their stated goal is the total destruction of Hamas because a ceasefire is a is a pause in the ability to conduct that kind of policy. I think it's also interesting to to note, and we haven't talked about this, is another front in this conflict has turned out to be within the United States. Hmm. What do you mean? Well, the mobilization of pro-Palestinian voices in a way that I don't think we've seen 
at a public level, the divisions we've seen in university campuses, the dissent channel and the, the much larger set of federal employees who've signed a, a, a letter to the president protesting the policy of standing behind Israel in the attacks on Gaza and, and urging a ceasefire. This, I think, is the, the most serious mobilization on the Palestinian question that I've seen in the United States. And every picture of a destroyed hospital in Gaza and every report of demonstrations in the Arab world or in Europe or in the United States helps the Iranian information front in that Iran can say, even, even those uh, countries that back Israel, you're seeing the, pu- the public not accepting that. Do you buy the argument that a ceasefire would be risky, maybe too risky, empowering Hamas and Iran? I think that there's a cause for a ceasefire just on a pure humanitarian basis, because even though Hamas might say the ceasefire is a victory, it would reduce the number of pictures going out to the world that are feeding the Iranian propaganda machine. I think if there were tangible accomplishments from a ceasefire, like the release of hostages, I think it could go some way into beginning a diplomatic framework here. But I think the Israelis seem intent on the destruction, at least of Hamas's military infrastructure in the northern part of Gaza. Now, at what point they decide they have done that, short of the destruction of Hamas as an organization as a whole, I don't know, and I bet they don't know. But I, I wouldn't be against a ceasefire. I think a ceasefire, you know, aside from the purely humanitarian elements of it, could lead to some progress on some kind of agreement on a political path. You're saying it could turn down the temperature for everyone. I think it could. Greg, thank you so much for joining me. I'm really grateful for your time. It was my pleasure. Gregory Gauze is the head of the Department of International Affairs at the Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas A&M University. He specializes in Middle East politics. And that's our show. If you're a fan of What Next, the best way to support our work is to join Slate Plus. Go on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, and Madeline Ducharme. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little boost from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you back here next time.